Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faint burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in this in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Let us now turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. It's the baptism of Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, this morning. Thank you so much for this little passage this time to consider the baptism of Jesus and what you have said about him. And we pray for our hearts and our minds to be ready and prepared to receive this word. Help us to be as delighted in Jesus as you are. Help us to keep following Jesus as he leads us in repentance. And we ask all of this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many dangers in life big ones and small ones. Some of us are afraid of snakes and spiders, which is hard because Australia has some of the most deadly snakes and spiders in the world. But we're afraid because we know the danger. We label something as dangerous because if it becomes a threat to our lives, to our security. I know some people who are afraid of pets, like cats and dogs, because they threaten our physical safety. You think about robbers and scammers, they're dangerous because they threaten our financial and personal security in our homes. Sometimes we even label people, certain people, as being dangerous people because being in relationship with them threatens our emotional and relational well-being. But then there are dangers that we just may not be aware of. But once we start down that path... We, we, the things will radically change. Like the person who starts smoking when they are young, who don't t doesn't tend to think about the massive health issues at the end of it. And then there's other things in life that we may not realize are super dangerous to your life when you first begin. Now, when it comes to knowing and following Jesus, or can I ask, does that seem dangerous to you? 
has following Jesus radically changed the course of your life, the things that you are passionate about? Have you ever thought of following Jesus as being a dangerous activity? Because that's kind of where we're going today. In this humble little passage, we have the seeds of something bigger, something that could potentially alter our lives, something that could be dangerous to our present loves and desires. Have I piqued your curiosity yet? Well, let's dive in and find out why. Uh, Usually at Esley Church, we take larger chunks of narrative to look at, so it's not every day that we get five verses from the Gospels to look at. And on first reading, it might appear that there's not much here, right? Jesus gets baptized, and the voice from heaven says nice things about Jesus. What more is there to know? And And is it really all that important? Now, with five verses, we're not going to tease out every single word in these verses, but I do want to say that there is more than meets the eye here. And what will help us is keeping the context of this passage in view and then asking some specific questions. Uh, The first big question we need to ask is this. Why does Jesus get baptized by John? So remember from last week, Pastor Richard was preaching from the first 12 verses of chapter 3, and then we met John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, calling on people to repent of their sin and get baptized. Their baptism, now, their baptism wasn't about the forgiveness of their sins. By that I mean they weren't getting baptized in order to be forgiven. It wasn't as though John was saying, get baptized and you will be forgiven. No, no, no. Their baptism was a sign of their confession. They were confessing their sins and getting baptized as a way of saying they were changing their lives, changing from following their sin to following God. Baptism was a switching of allegiances. And also remember that John was using his baptism as a pointer to something greater. He baptized with water, but there was going to be one who was to come who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, someone mightier someone more spiritually important, someone whose value and worth was so great that John was not even worthy to stoop down and carry his shoes. And so John is out in the wilderness baptizing people and preaching, and then one day it happens. Jesus turns up in verse 13, and he turns up at the Jordan River to meet John expressly for the purpose of getting baptized. But in verse 14, John objects to this. Somehow John knows that Jesus is the one he spoke about, the one who was mightier than he, more spiritually important, the one of greater value and worth. We know that John's baptism was about repentance, a change of life, turning from sin and turning to follow God. And we know that Jesus did not need to do that. He had nothing to repent of. He had not sinned. Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness. How can John, the lesser man, baptize Jesus, the greater man? And John knows that he offers a lesser baptism, water, in comparison to the Holy Spirit and fire. So look at verse 14 again with me. John rightly replies, I need to be baptized by you. Everyone knows it, and so 
why does Jesus respond the way he does in verse 15? Read it with me again. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, that is John, consented. Now that, verse 15, that, that's a very mysterious response. What does Jesus mean when he says that? So there are two things going on here. The first has to do with the two key words, fulfill and righteousness. Let, let's break this down a bit. Stick with me. The next three minutes are a bit technical, but hopefully it'll make sense at the end. Right? The word fulfill here appears a number of times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it means to bring to completion, right? That something has been built up in the past and is, now is the moment that all of it is being brought to reality. What is now coming to completion? Well, it's the end, of what, end part of what Jesus says there. All righteousness. Righteousness. And when you hear that word, uh, you think of what the Apostle Paul and how he uses it. And when Paul uses it in his letters, he's focusing on right standing before God in, in a kind of legal, technical sense. It's like standing before a judge in a court of law and being declared innocent and right. But in Matthew, the word leans in another direction. Righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew speaks about the Christian life. It's about relationship with God focused on obedience here is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to fulfill God's plan, which is a plan to make for himself a people who will love him and obey him. So for Jesus to be baptized is to fulfill all righteousness. It's to bring to completion God's plan of making a people who will know him and love him and obey him. And this makes sense of the context as well. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. He hasn't actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, he hasn't spoken a word yet, right? But after this, he's going to be tested in the wilderness, and then he will launch into his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon which is all about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in his kingdom, a sermon which will call on people to repent of living for themselves and to turn to Jesus and live in His way in His kingdom. And so the baptism signals the start of Jesus' ministry. But why is Jesus the one being baptized? Wouldn't it actually make more sense that Jesus comes down to the Jordan River and He takes over the baptism ministry? Right? The, the one who is going to start this new kingdom. Well, why does Jesus do that? Why doesn't he take over the ministry? Now, here's the second reason why Jesus is baptized then. Because in being baptized, Jesus identifies with his people rather than distancing themselves, himself from them. Uh, think about it. Who needs to be baptized? Right, next week, we're going to see the baptism of three people, four, maybe five, right? Who needs to be baptized? It's sinners. Because sinners need to repent of their sins. Well, Jesus is not a sinner. But in receiving baptism, Jesus becomes one with the people who need help. Think of it this way. Remember the prophet Daniel. He led the nation in a prayer of repentance. This is what he prayed uh, to God. He's prayed, we have sinned 
we have not listened. That's in Daniel chapter 9. But when you read through Daniel, there's nothing to indicate that Daniel sinned in that way. Or think of Nehemiah, another one of God's leaders, who also led a prayer of repentance. In Nehemiah chapter 1, he prays this, we have acted very corruptly, even though he personally had not. See, both Daniel and Nehemiah, they led God's people in a prayer of corporate repentance as one of God's people. See, when Jesus is baptized, he joins his people, leading them in corporate repentance. He didn't need to repent, but he is our repentance leader. When Jesus is baptized, he leads his people as one of them. He identifies with us. And so if Jesus identifies with us and leads us in repentance, what does that mean for us? Uh, Let me break this down into two halves. The first half is that repentance means following Jesus as our leader. Now, last Sunday, uh, last weekend, uh, I was literally halfway down driving to the central coast north of Sydney. I managed somehow in the patchy service, phone service, to live stream the service while I was driving. And yes, I had my two hands on the wheel and I was focused on the road. I was just listening, okay? So let me, let me quote Pastor Richard's sermon on what repentance is not. What repentance is not. Repentance is not one and done. It's a whole-of-life orientation, constant and continual, constantly turning from away from your sin. Repentance is not shallow. Self-reliance and self-righteousness have no place in a life of repentance. It ought to be deep enough to admit that we cannot save ourselves and deep enough to recognize that we don't need to save ourselves. So that was from last week. This week, we've been reminded that repentance is an ongoing and deep act that turns away from delighting in sin and turns to following Jesus. That's what repentance looks like. It looks like turning to Jesus and following Him, listening to His words, watching His actions and imitating Him. The moment of Jesus' baptism here at the end, at the very start of Je- is at the very start of Jesus' public ministry, and it sets the pattern and the direction to come. Now, in the coming weeks, months, and years, actually, over this next year and the year after, we're going to walk through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to clarify who this Jesus is that we are turning to. And this is really important because you need to have a clear picture of Otherwise, you don't know who you're going to turn to. Otherwise, you'll be on a path to being disillusioned and disappointed. I saw this a few weeks ago. A woman asked to see me, and she was in tears. Her life was in a mess. She was with a live-in boyfriend who was cheating on her, who was emotionally manipulating her, who was gaslighting her, and then she was starting to come out of it and then was asking... was teary in a mess, and she couldn't understand why God would allow her to go through all of that. I said, okay, I asked her, who is God? Who is God to you? What, is, what was the gospel that she believed? And more importantly, who was Jesus to her? To her, God was meant to be a kind and loving, someone who would always look after her and bless her. The gospel 
Uh, she wouldn't. She couldn't quite clearly articulate anything on. And on who Jesus was, she she wasn't exactly sure. See, she had no clear picture of Jesus and the gospel, and the path of her life. And that path had led her to a disappointment and disillusionment with God. But here's the thing. She was not disillusioned and disappointed with the God of the Bible. She was disappointed and disillusioned with the God of her imagination. But let me turn the question back to us. What about you? Do you know Jesus well enough that turning to him makes sense? Do you understand the gospel and his teaching to a proper depth that your repentance is also just as deep? Or is your repentance shallow because your understanding of Jesus is shallow? See, Jesus is the leader of our repentance. He is the one we turn to and follow. So it will be really, really important to know and understand who this Jesus is. And that leads us to the second application about repentance. And that's the comfort of knowing that we follow someone who isn't on the sidelines yelling at us and telling us what to do. He's not like some coach who has never played the sport. No, we follow someone who has entered our world to become one of us He is not a general in a war in some cozy office bunker pushing buttons and giving directions to underlings to carry out. Jesus is a battlefield commander on the ground with us, charging ahead of us in war. And that should comfort us in our struggles and our trials. I've been a Christian for around 22 years now, And the longer I go along, the more I realize this one inescapable truth. Fighting against sin doesn't get any easier. In fact, if anything, I can find myself giving into it more often because I'm now older and more tired. And so when I'm called to repent, it's super helpful and super comforting to know that I'm not being yelled at from a commander on high. I'm being encouraged by my leader on the battlefield who is near, so near, that he's able to put his hand on my shoulders and point me ahead. And he doesn't shout commands at us. He's not a drill sergeant barking at us and wanting to demoralize us. The one who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire has a dove descend upon him, a gentle bird. Jesus will be at work in us to burn sin away, but... He does so gently. When Jesus says he has come to fulfill all righteousness, he's come to be that gentle, suffering servant that we read of in Isaiah 42. Uh, Listen again from that epic chapter. Isaiah chapter 42. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The one who calls us to repentance is our gentle and lowly friend. How many of us here feel that image that our lives at this present moment feel bruised? That we feel like a 
a faintly burning wick. We're almost at the end of the year. We're almost feeling that end of the, the tiredness. How many of us feel that right now in our bones? What a great comfort to know that Jesus comes in and he's not here to break us down. He is here to comfort us and lead us gently in repentance. So on repentance, we follow Jesus who is our leader and he is a leader who is with us, among us, and one of us. But then when he rises out of the water, a voice from heaven identifies Jesus in another way. Now, we've covered this, uh, this particular bit uh, in our Trinity series, so let me briefly explain it here. Right? In verses 16 to 17, we've got this remarkable moment showing us the Trinity in action. Uh, Christians believe that God is triune. We, not that there are three gods, but one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, in this scene, we are told who God is, what Jesus is like, and what the Father thinks of him. So here we have this scene. The heavens open up. The sky parts in a unique way for all who are there to see. They see, they see the Spirit of God come down out of the heavens in the form of a dove. It rests on Jesus. And then the voice from heaven speaks, confirming that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is God? The voice is God the Father. The Son has just been baptized. And the Spirit is the dove resting on him. So we've got this little picture here of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, unique persons and one God. What is Jesus like? Well, we get an indication of that by the Spirit of God resting upon him. Uh, John the Baptist has said that he would baptize people with fire, and yet the symbol of Jesus' baptism is a dove. Again, Jesus will burn away sin, but he will do so with gentleness. And we'll see that later on. Jesus will describe his own heart as gentle and lowly. This is who Jesus is. What does the Father think of him? Oh, Jesus is his beloved Son, eternally loved. Jesus is the precious jewel in his Father's eye. There is no being, no one else in all the universe who is more loved than the Son. Even the love of a parent for their child, as deep and profound as that is, is only a drop in the ocean of love the Father has for the Son. And the Father takes pleasure and delight in His Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, did you hear the echoes of Isaiah 42? We'll hear it again. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, we have... Jesus here, bringing to completion what was prophesied so long ago. And, and how does he do it? Between Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 3, there's a 30-year gap. We don't know much about what happened in that time, save for one small story in the Gospel of Luke. But in that time, Jesus has so loved his heavenly Father, so obeyed his word, that the life of Jesus was a pleasure and delight to his Father. And then we get confirmation of that throughout the gospel as you read it. The life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is one in which his Father takes pleasure and delight. And if the Father delights in, this son, in the Son this much, 
we ought to as well. To delight in anything else is to say that that something else is worthy of more pleasure and joy than Jesus. So again, what about us? Do we delight in Jesus like the Father does? Is knowing Jesus through the pages of the Bible, of experiencing his love and care, the greatest delight in our lives? Or are we a bit childish when it comes to our pleasures? Now, when I say childish, I'm thinking of my own children. Uh, Here's what I mean. Uh, Late last year, around this time last year, a little bit earlier, we started planning a family holiday. We were going as a family to Singapore, right? Land of the hawker centers, of cheap goods, of sights to see and lots of friends to catch up with. But it was going to be in February, and that would mean we would have to take the kids out of school for about two weeks. And so when we told the kids that we were going and that we had to take them out of school, their excitement levels we're at like two or three out of ten, right? They, they were not keen on missing school. And I'm just like, guys, it's Singapore. <laughs> so then I had to show them food videos on YouTube and all the stuff that you can eat in Singapore and all the tourist videos showing them all the places that we were going to and their excitement levels crept up to maybe five. They just didn't get it. Now that we've been, when I ask, do they want to go back, the answer is an excited yes. They had experienced it for themselves, and now they knew. But are we like that when it comes to delighting in Jesus? Are our excitement levels at like two or three? I mean... How do we we raise the excitement levels up to an 8 or 9 or maybe even a 10? I realize it's just like my kids. It's knowing and experiencing it for yourself. How do you go about knowing and experiencing Jesus? Well, it starts with the Word. It starts, it must start there, but it doesn't end with just reading it. But knowing Jesus so well in these pages that it melts our hearts, that our delight will, you know, our delight will ebb and wane from time to time, but repentance will keep us coming back to this fountain of joy. How do you know that you're properly repentant? How do you know that you're truly converted? Well, part of the answer is that you delight in Jesus. Now, that might cause a few of us to pause and reflect on our own spiritual walk. Now, maybe for some of us, it might make us uncomfortable with the thought, have I ever delighted in the person and work of Jesus? Has Jesus ever deeply engaged my mind? Has interaction with him and with others given me joy? That's a big challenge, isn't it? to delight in the Son in the same way that the Father delights in Him, to take joy in the Son in the same way that the Father takes joy in Him. And to do that because we are deeply convinced and convicted that Jesus is the ultimate and greatest delight. 
Now, this is where things get a little dangerous. See, if we are delighting in Jesus the way the Father delights in him, well, that is dangerous. It's dangerous to our future plans and security. Delighting in Jesus means all other earthly pleasures and securities and goals take a back seat. It also means that the desires we want for this life are now filtered through the lens of the greater delight in Jesus. And that's dangerous to earthly security and pleasure because now those things become less important, less important than knowing Jesus, delighting in Jesus and having others to know and delight in him. It becomes dangerous to our relationships. It's dangerous because you want others to know about what gives you delight, but they won't necessarily share in your joy. And some are even going to push back. It's dangerous because you'll begin to enjoy the company of those who delight in the same things. The world around us says, surround yourself with the best and brightest people so that they will influence you and you can get ahead in this life. But if you delight in Jesus more than anything else, then you will want to surround yourself with people who delight in him as well. And I think of it this way. You'd much rather go to a concert with someone who will sing and dance with you, not someone who will sit there looking bored. You'd rather go to a popular restaurant with a fellow foodie rather than someone who has no taste buds and complains about not wanting to try anything. You'd rather go hiking or bushwalking with someone who actually enjoys walking and not with someone who complains every step of the way that they hate insects and would rather be at home. If you delight in Jesus like the Father does, you will want to surround yourself with people who delight in him as well. Now, that all sounds like a lot. And the basic truth at the bottom of all of this is simple. You will accept the danger if you believe Jesus is worth following. Do we believe that? Maybe it's time for some of us to take a big risk. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to delight in Jesus as you delight in him. For you have said that your son has done all things to please you. So help us, Father, to capture a sense of that in our own lives. Help us to not be afraid of how that may radically shift and change our priorities in life. We're going to spend all eternity delighting in you and delighting in your son. So help us to use this life now in preparation for that, to grow a delight for him. Help us, Father, to grow such a delight that when we see him face to face, the value, his value and worth will make all sacrifices completely worth it. Help us to believe this. And then help us to want others to know this as well. Grow in us that sort of deep conviction for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.